This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. When you hear about type 1 diabetes, what comes to mind? Never heard of it? Or maybe you think of young children. But did you know that adults can get diagnosed with a form of type 1 even after 30 years old? We recently got a message from a listener, Mel, in Indian Village, who was interested in learning more about adult-onset diabetes. I think we hear a lot about type 2, but um, type 1, especially the type 1 that occurs later in life, is not so much uh, discussed. And it would just be great to, to get a lot of insight about that process and, and how to adjust your life for that type of news. Adult onset diabetes, also known as latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, or LADA, it's a kind of type 1 diabetes that occurs in adulthood and gets worse over time. And patients with this type of adult onset diabetes are often misdiagnosed. They can spend years trying to manage the wrong condition. So to learn more, we're discussing with Dr. Lewis Philipson, director of the UChicago Medicine Kovler Diabetes Center. Welcome, doctor. So great to be here. Thank you. So there might be people who have never heard of latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, or LADA. What exactly is it? Well, for one thing, it's confusing. So I, I love the idea that it really is slow onset type 1. And you, you, know, you, you already mentioned close to 40 million people have all kinds of diabetes. What's confusing to doctors more and more is that we're subdividing. We've been talking about LADA for a long time as if it was something different. The research shows that it's not that different from type 1 that happens, as you've alluded to already today, in mostly in kids, mm -hmm. but it can happen at any age. So is that why it's sometimes called type 1 and a half diabetes? Well, so people subdivide, I think, sometimes for, for not good reasons. So people tend to be thin. They tend to be not what, what you might think of as type 2 diabetes. And as you said, it can be slow onset. So a doctor can think, oh, this person, this adult person has type 2, but then they don't, they don't do so well over time. So help, help us understand, compare LADA to type 1 and type 2. Break it down for us. What are the symptoms? What, what does the person look like? How do they feel? Well, we often think of type 1, as you said, in kids, which is wrong. Re most recent research shows that almost half of everyone with type 1 is an adult, or at least starts as a young adult. So we're, we're probably completely wrong about specifying. There is a peak, so the, a lot of kids will, get it more, more, kids will get it more often than adults. Mm -hmm. And usually between 6 and, say, 16 or 18 would be the peak onset. It can be very dramatic. That's really what's so different in children. It can be explosive, like the kid seems fine one day and is really in distress, may need to go to the emergency room almost the next day. And in retrospect, they were losing weight, they were, they were dehydrated, they were, sometimes they start wetting the bed. And in adults, much more gradual onset, but we think it's a very similar disease overall. Why do people develop diabetes in the first place? So that is a hard question, and there's probably 30 or 40 different kinds of diabetes now we're subdividing. So the more common type 2 diabetes, not always people are overweight, but it's some. So at the end of the day, there's always not enough insulin being made. There's some degree of insulin resistance. Larger people need more insulin. People who are inactive need more insulin. But either way, you need to have enough insulin to survive. And given that we're now just about 100 years after the discovery of insulin, mm -hmm. life-saving situation, it's only part of the answer. So the adult onset type 1s are people who have a misguided immune system. So that's where the lot of latent autoimmune diabetes in uh -huh. adults comes in. So the same process is in type 1 in kids, but a slower loss of insulin secreting ability. 
So trying to get a, a handle of, of the numbers when I was preparing for this, I mean, uh, I've seen numbers ranging between 2 to 12% of adults with, with type 2 diabetes actually have LADA. Yeah, it's based on estimates. And, you know, there is sort of an ethnic difference. So the hotspot, and this is hard to understand, but the hotspot for type 1 diabetes is people from Scandinavia, so northern European ancestry. Really? So in some places in Denmark, Sweden, Finland, there are studies, there are so many people who get type 1, there are studies to follow kids from essentially birth to figure out why they get autoimmune diabetes, which often includes hypothyroidism, celiac disease, and a few other odds and ends. There can be a large collection of autoimmunities. In people from other parts of the world, by origin, it's never zero, but people who might be from Asia, Africa, South, other parts of indigenous populations, there seems to be a lower degree, lower incidence of autoimmunity. So I want to listen now to a, a clip. This is from former CNN correspondent Christina Aleshi. Uh, she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was 35. The symptoms that were a little bit disturbing, I just kind of wrote them off as, you know, high stress. You know, I was always I was always thirsty. I was a little bit fatigued, but, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. I was always hungry, but I attributed that to a higher uh, number of workouts during the week. So I kind of just explained away all of the more obvious symptoms. Doctor, you said it yourself. This is confusing, right? Yeah. You know, because there are these similarities between type 1, LADA, type 2. Can that make it easy then to misdiagnose LADA? Absolutely. You know, given that we have a referral practice, I often see people who thought they had type 2 for years, a decade or more, and then when we do some tests, we find their insulin secreting ability is low. We can also do tests for antibodies. You know, with COVID, everyone knows what an antibody is. Right. But interestingly, you can measure the antibodies that can give you a signal that it's type 1 diabetes. It's just not standard of care. So doctors will do it when they suspect type 1, when they think about type 1. Usually it's an endocrinologist, but sometimes a, you know, a broad-thinking general internist will also do those tests. And then we, we can say it's most likely type 1. So I want you to dig deeper here and talk more about the impact of misdiagnosis. Like, like well, what happens if you're trying to treat type 2 when someone actually has LADA or even undiagnosed LADA? Well, it could be devastating, certainly frustrating. As I can think of any number of examples of people whose average blood sugar. So people who know about diabetes may know that we use something called an hemoglobin A1C test. So that's a test which technically has how much sugar is stuck to the red stuff in your red blood cells. Mm -hmm. And so that's a percentage. Normal is up to, say, 5.6 or 5.7%. So we do that test. And if someone has type 2 diabetes and they're not being treated correctly, it slowly gets worse. So if it's eight, nine, 10%, we know the sugars are very high, they're probably losing weight, not feeling well, urinating a lot. And at some point, someone has to sort of raise their hand and say, this isn't working. Yeah, well, you've given us some indications so far of how you recognize LADA, but uh, for those listening, talk more about the symptoms, right? Are there symptoms that folks should look out for? But it's really interesting in terms of how resilient people can be. I've had runners, I've had athletes um, of all kinds, and, and they slowly get run down. Sometimes it's very subtle. You know, your time in the half marathon may not be as good as it used to be. Uh, or you find yourself getting up a couple times at night to pee and sort of you, you think, well, did I have a lot to drink that day? But then slowly it gets worse and worse. And at some point you go to the doctor and the blood sugar could be already at that point very high. What about 
between men and women? Is there a difference in what the symptoms look like? That's an interesting question. I don't think so, but it can depend on a lot of other things. I generally think of women as being tougher, but you know, they so they can. I mean, I uh, would agree. There you go. So, <laughs> so I think they they might not recognize the symptoms. They're often doing you know four jobs at once, and 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 often let's say running a household or not, but whatever they're doing, they tend to deny. I think as much as men do. So. So I don't know if there's any huge difference. I think one of the things that happens is that sometimes we see this in as a variant of gestational diabetes, which is important to recognize. Mm -hmm. So I've had women, uh, we've seen them come in with, with diabetes during pregnancy, and then we say, oh, it's going to go away, and then it doesn't. And at that point- Is that the case for all? Does any gestational diabetes well, eventually go away? So about half of people with gestational diabetes, when it go, so mostly it goes away, yes, and, and, and then, but half of them will come back as type 2 diabetes for the most part. But when it doesn't go away after pregnancy, then we might say, gee, what's going on again? We check insulin levels. We check, again, a special test called a C-peptide test, which my teacher discovered, so I'm very proud of that at the University of Chicago. So that C-peptide is a part of insulin. You might say it's a byproduct of insulin manufacturing, mm -hmm. which is not in the bottle. So if you, uh, the bottle of insulin. So if you measure it in the blood and it's there, you can get a rough idea of how much insulin the body is making. Since most of the insulin is absorbed in the liver, it can be hard to see. When do you recommend that people visit their doctor about this? Well, if you don't feel well, it's good to see a doctor, although that can be off-putting and it can you know, take a long time. But any of those symptoms, the, the, the tests are pretty simple. I mean, you can get a finger stick that's a... People call them AccuCheck, the brand name, or just getting a, a glucose stick on your finger. Internists can do with this A1C test I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And you can see, you know, are, do you have diabetes? And then the question is, what kind of diabetes? And one of the things we have been preaching the last decade or so is that once you have diabetes, it is important to make a diagnosis. I think it's still not standard of care for many doctors to go beyond you have diabetes. And this is where if the drugs don't work in the beginning, the usual drugs for type 2 diabetes, yeah. we need to look further. So, doctor, when it comes to health conditions, we know family history plays a, a big role, right, in, in whether someone's uh, likely to have that same issue. How does family health history play here in a person's chances of LADA? Well, it, it's it's all critical. And, and if you had been in the audience when I gave my presidency talk for the American Diabetes Association, I think I mentioned family history maybe a dozen times. And, and part of it is because, strangely enough, the University of Chicago, we're interested in also rare things. So you mentioned something 35 plus million people have diabetes. Mostly 90%, 82, 89% have type two. A few percent, maybe another eight or 9% have type one. And then there's 20 or 30 different other kinds of diabetes. So I would consider the LADA or the adult onset type one, a subset of type one. It, it, it's really, in the same family. But there are other kinds of diabetes that you're, you could be born with. So there are single gene mutations that can cause diabetes. And those things are often missed as well, but they can require very simple treatment, sometimes a pill, sometimes no treatment at all. So more and more, we're learning the bottom line, make a diagnosis. The yeah. doctor has to be able to know what kind of diabetes you have. I mean, is there a way to prevent this? Certain kinds, yes. So we think that in certain kinds of type 2 diabetes, there's prevention. 
there's more and more research being done in prevention of type 1 diabetes. So how do you do that? So that's where a family history is critical. Yeah. So there are studies like a study called Diabetes Trial Net, which is NIH funded and also from the JDRF, so mm -hmm. which used to be the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. The name changed just the letters because it's not only about because kids. Because it's not about right, kids, right. yeah. So those studies can help. So if you're a parent with type 1 and you have children, you probably want your children tested for those antibodies we measure, we mentioned. Where did we get that from in the first place? That this is a this is for children. Well, I think. Did it start out that way and then eventually? Well, it just I think the dramatic presentation, the fact that the children would basically waste away and before 1920 die, so that was pretty dramatic. And as we said, the the adult versions tend to be slower. Yeah. So I want to talk more about treatment, which we've touched on here and there. But how do you treat LADA or type 1 diabetes in adults at the, the Kovler Diabetes Center? So the answer is, of course, it depends. So if someone comes in and they are normal weight or underweight, the treatment is probably going to be insulin. There have been some studies looking at other sorts of things. If you're overweight, maybe some of the traditional treatments for type 2 can be effective. So those are drugs like metformin. There have been some recent rethinkings about some of the drugs now like we've you know very popular the Ozempics the Munjaros there have been some studies to suggest that that might help early onset type 1 in adults but the jury's out and at the end of the day none of them have been very well controlled none of them have been very long mm -hmm. so I tend if, if there if the if what's missing is insulin the thing to do is to replace the insulin yeah there haven't been any guidelines to treat this disease until recently. Why? Well, the guidelines would, would, I guess, fall under type 1 diabetes. Okay. So there are people who, you know, wanted to see whether LADA was a different entity. So far, the differences between what you might call LADA and type 1 diabetes are modest. Very good for researchers to understand these key differences. But overall, the treatment is the same. If insulin is missing, you replace insulin. But that turns out to be hard. Was that difficult for you as a care provider? I'm thinking of how you knew what you were supposed to do with not too many guidelines. Well, the last decade or two, basically all I do is take care of people with diabetes. So while I'm an endocrinologist, I, I really am unusual in that I just do diabetes these days. Okay. So what can be difficult is figuring out the best way to replace insulin. And insulin is interesting in that it has to go up with each meal. So eventually people with adult onset type 1 would need that kind of treatment. And we, we call it, the technical term is a basal bolus treatment. So there's insulin all around the clock, so okay. one dose at night, and then each meal. So basically, it's a pretty terrible thing to have to deal with. People look great, they look healthy, strong, robust. But That's several times a day, though. F at least four, when you, when you have full replacement for insulin. Now, the option there is to use an insulin pump. So, so adults also can migrate if they need that level of intensity for their insulin dosing, then modern treatments of really smart pumps. So these are artificial intelligence, or you might say algorithm-related pumps, where there's a con continuous glucose monitor, which has revolutionized everything we do in diabetes. Mm -hmm. So there's several companies that make these small devices that go on your body. They report to your phone or a reader by every few minutes what your blood sugar is. That's a, so it's a lot of intensity there. It is. And then the insulin can be 
delivered by a pump, which is actually listening to the continuous glucose monitor. So that's for those people who really need that level of intensity, but even having the continuous glucose monitor can be terrific for people who don't quite need that level of intensity. You know, as I mentioned earlier, this topic came from a reset listener. And just even in talking with, with folks I'm related to, my circles, I mentioned, oh, we're gonna be talking about type one diabetes. And many said, type one? What's that? Why do you think there isn't much awareness around adult onset diabetes? So that's a, again, it's a hard question. It's certainly where I live, you know, in my world, it's, it's really all about all the different kinds of diabetes there are. And of course- But I think generally, I'm not seeing well, a lot of commercials. No, or, but there are, there is evidence for the JDRF to, to be out there and the American Diabetes Association, both are raising money, doing research, there's a tremendous amount of money. The, the, and I'll mention the JDRF Gala in Chicago just a few months ago raised mm -hmm. $18 million this year. Wonderful. And that's part of a global operation to raise money for improvements at all levels, including how to get people away from having to take insulin. So several companies, large companies, are making efforts to use embryonic stem cells to replace mm -hmm. insulin. How Adults, close are we to? Well, we're doing it right now. So one study that we're involved in through a company called Vertex is has several centers around the country where stem cells are being given to people. Those stem cells have been engineered to make insulin. And really it's only adults who can be volunteers for that study. So the cells are being given. Right now there are two studies. One of them is on hold because of immunosuppression uh, side effects. The other study uses little pouches to hold those stem cells and we're keeping our fingers crossed that this is now the beginning of a new era for treatment of type 1 diabetes. Speaking of insulin, I mean, it, it, can timing have an impact? Uh, is there too late, too early, as far as when you start the treatment? Timing is everything. Yeah. So, so to give insulin just during the day, once you get used to it, it's best given before meals. And as I said, often some small dose around the clock can be necessary. But people who are, who are very large or who have what we call insulin resistance may need what sounds like spectacular doses of insulin compared to someone who's thin and who has type 1. But the timing for, for someone who is not diagnosed yet with type 1, you know, that also can be you know, an important milestone. So they have that first dose of insulin, it's scary. It's something you don't want to do. Yeah. And people worry about the side effects of insulin. The biggest one is that insulin lowers the blood sugar. Yeah. And sometimes what I say is the lower you go, the lower you go. And when you say it's scary, what are you hearing exactly from, from well, patients? Well, what? just yesterday I had a woman who uh, we, we started on a new blood sugar monitor. She took a dose of insulin. She went shopping and got so low that she was, her husband was with her, luckily, but she almost passed out. That happens a lot. Wow. So that's the big side effect of insulin. That's the scariest part of going so low that your brain doesn't work, your, in, your brain needs sugar for fuel, and once that sugar goes too low, your brain checks out. So in between, it can be, be almost like you're drunk. So this is why we ask everyone who's on insulin to wear a, uh, a piece of jewelry, so a, ne a, a necklace or a wristband that says type one diabetes or taking insulin. So if the police find you or the paramedics find you, you know, they don't take you to the wrong place and they know immediately that what they need to do is check your blood sugar and give you insulin.
we're back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. We're still here in the studio with Dr. Lewis Phillipson, who's director of the UChicago Medicine Kovler Diabetes Center. Before the break, we discussed type 1 diabetes in adulthood or latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. But now I want to zoom out uh, just a little bit, doctor. Let's talk more generally about diabetes as a long-lasting condition. You've talked about how it isn't easy to adjust, especially at the beginning. What's your advice then for, for patients navigating this as a new diagnosis? Well, lately I've been thinking about two ways to tell people about what we do. One is the Goldilocks principle and the other is the Tinkerbell conjecture. So this happens to all of medicine, right? But the, the idea of Goldilocks is that everything should be just right. Yes. So that means the insulin timing, the doses, knowing your blood sugar, but also your weight, your food. It isn't, it isn't about any one thing. And so these visits can take a while and it's great to have a team. So, so the team is what makes everything worthwhile. A, a, a wonderful diabetes educator, nurses, pharmacists, the family needs to be engaged. So, so that's part of the Goldilocks idea. Yeah. The Tinkerbell idea is one of the reasons people haven't heard about this so much. So you, everyone remembers the point about Tinkerbell. You have to believe. And so my magic is what's in this clear liquid bottle here. How does that work? People don't, don't, I think, understand. So I have to explain, or we have to explain as a field, why injecting this stuff which is hard to wrap your head around, is going to make you feel better and make your body as, as good as it was before mm -hmm. diabetes happened. So those, those are some of the zoom out ideas. Right, right. And we're talking about type 1 here, 1 1.5 I'm hearing it goes to type 25 and beyond even, doctor? Well, some of the things that happened actually at the University of Chicago by my teachers was discovery of single gene causes of diabetes. So those have been called monogenic diabetes. Uh, there was a, a wonderful doctor at University of Michigan, Steve Fiennes, who also coined the term MODI or maturity onset diabetes of youth. So these are what you might call other, not type one or type two, mm -hmm. not autoimmune, but people can are born with diseases. So it's like having in some cases different eye colors or different other conditions where there's a a dominant gene, so something that comes from one side or the other. And there are many kinds of those things. The, the importance of that is, as you already said, the family history. Now, sometimes there isn't any family history, and so we think mostly about type 1 in that case, because that, we didn't really discuss that. But in type 1, there's a what we call a predilection. So you're, you have a tendency to autoimmunity, but you may not have anyone in your family that has type 1. And that's often a shock. People mm. will tell me no one ever had that. And I say, yeah, that's what we see. Yeah. But in this monogenic diabetes, there's often a family history and sometimes in multiple generations and multiple individuals. And for the last 20 years, we've been collecting people with those sorts of things. We have a registry of almost 5,000 people of which something like almost 1,300 have a known cause of diabetes. And there are other studies. So that's called monogenic diabetes. Yeah. And we're also doing an NIH-funded study with about 10, 12 centers around the, around the country called Radiant. And that's a study also for people who doctors say, I don't understand why you have diabetes. You have something I don't get. I'm not sure it's type 1. I'm not sure it's type 2. 
And so this radiant study, which you can find on the website, is it's a radiant diabetes or atypical diabetes, mm -hmm. is also something we're looking at. So yes, in, in, in the scheme of things, there are many kinds of diabetes. I read a paper just this week that tried to subdivide type 1, not into type 1 and LADA, but six different kinds. Oh, goodness. So, so there's, you know, and the question then becomes, is it, does it matter? You know, at the end of the day, does it matter? Right. It, Especially when the treatments, as you, we've treatment talked about, to are, be the same, are similar. But the research and the drugs and when to do it and how it might impact your family is very important. I mean, yeah, speaking of that, let, let's talk about support. How can we better support the people in our lives who are diabetic? So, so one of the things is I, I don't use the word diabetic anymore. So some of us are, we say PWD, so people with diabetes, okay. because you're not your illness. And so we try to make that clear. You have diabetes, you're not diabetic. Now, that, is a, that's a, that, that dies hard, right? So it's the Yankee Doodle situation. People say, well, I'm diabetic and I'm you know, proud of that and I've learned to live with it. And it'll take time before we make that go away. Mm -hmm. But there are other diseases where clearly you're not a canceretic. I mean, that's not a thing. Um, and so having diabetes, calling someone a diabetic, almost as if we think there's an element of blaming the victim there. It's not your fault. I hear you. So how do we support people with diabetes? I think part of it is understanding. So don't look over somebody's shoulder and say, oops, you're eating that. If you have type 1 diabetes and or if you have any other kind of diabetes where you're taking insulin, you can take enough insulin to have, you know, that treat. That's not a thing. Otherwise, it's important just to be supportive, to be sure that you have things available that mm -hmm. might be low in sugar, which is generally speaking not a bad idea anyhow, uh, to have things that aren't uh, soft drinks or sugary beverages. There are many, many alternatives. And I think to be understanding and to listen, just like anyone else with any chronic disease, it's good to be present mm -hmm. and not to be overbearing. On the topic of insulin, I keep seeing news about a $35 price cap for, for insulin. So clear it up for us, doctor, because just a, a few days ago, Eli Lilly agreed to offer patients with diabetes in Minnesota uh, to pay no more than $35 a month for it. This has been a strangely, spectacularly important problem now for a long time. You know, when insulin was basically discovered and then invented, it took only months from the time of its discovery in the 1920s until Eli Lilly was churning out insulin from cow and pig pancreas in Indianapolis and sending them around the country. In fact, those of you who've seen the, the movie uh, Killers of the Flower Moon saw the Osage Nation was devastated by diabetes as early as 1925. And they were one, some of those folks were some of the first people to get insulin. But then over the years, especially over the last 15 to 20 years, the, the price of insulin skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. So instead of being pennies a bottle, which is probably all it costs to make, it has skyrocketed to $500, $600, $700 a bottle. Part of that was the invention of designer insulins, which was a good thing. So there are many insulins. There's probably over a dozen different kinds of insulins now. The stuff that originally was purified, human insulin, replaced animal insulin by the 1980s. That became much more expensive in the beginning, but really it's made the same way you make beer. It's made by yeast in vats, right. so no animals are involved anymore, and then purified. And then people figured out how to tinker with insulin to make it either long-acting or very short-acting. So that was research, and the companies, I think, justly required some compensation for those research 
mm. experiences. But now it's a long time. And none of those things really, if, if it was a, a, a small molecule instead of a protein, they would all be generic. So part of the effort is to figure out why the cost went up so much. And, you know, it's like a circular firing squad. Everybody's pointing at somebody else. Right. But I think finally we figured out that this is ridiculous. This is a life-saving, important medication, and a cap on the price is important. There's problems with that. I mean, I'm not saying that a $35 vial of insulin is, is going to solve all the problems. In some countries, it's free. I, I've been to India several times, and when I visit clinics that take care of people with type 1 diabetes there, the people with type 1 diabetes are given insulin. It's paid for by the government and by the local clinics. So, so there's different ways of dealing with diabetes that, you know, the way we do it here may not be the best way. I want to also go back to something else we discussed earlier. According to the CDC, Americans of, of some, quote, racial and ethnic minority groups and groups with lower socioeconomic status, they have historically higher rates of, of illness and death from diabetes than white people, end quote. What do you think, in your professional opinion, needs to be done to narrow that gap and disparity? So this is a hugely important issue. And one of the things that has influenced my thinking is a book called uh, Diabetes, the History of Race and Disease by a professor at Vanderbilt. She starts out with chapter one, where Jewish people from Eastern Europe came to Germany and the German doctor said, ah, this is a Jewish disease, diabetes. Now they were talking then mostly about type two and that was in the 1800s. And since then, all sorts of people of generally speaking, lower socioeconomic groups were said to have more diabetes. And so it, it gets into some very difficult questions about racism in medicine, going back to some of the leaders in American medicine in the 1920s, 1930s. Mm -hmm. so, but I can say that in some, in some ethnic groups, it certainly seems that diabetes is more prevalent. We talk about a genetic predisposition. So people perhaps over the millennia who we're in, re, this is one hypothesis, right? It's called the thrifty gene hypothesis, that, that we were built to withstand starvation. And, but when there's times of plenty, some of us put on way too many pounds mm -hmm. and that that can outstrip our ability to make insulin. So the idea is of, of in a time of plenty, of sort of unlimited calories, calories that are easily digested, type two diabetes becomes more prevalent. Type one diabetes, different, different situation altogether. Well, uh, there is one event happening this weekend that I want to mention, Doctor. JDRF, which is the organization you talked about earlier that funds research to cure, prevent, and treat type 1 diabetes, they're hosting a free in-person educational summit at the Stevens Convention Center in Rosemont this Saturday. So if, if folks want to learn more about diabetes, Tell us all the resources you can think of right now that you would point them to. Well, there are a number of great websites, and certainly the JDRF website, at, which is jdrf.org, and the American Diabetes Association, diabetes.org, are two outstanding places of, of really well-considered and carefully packaged information. There are many others, the, the CDC, the Center for Diabetes, for Center for Disease Prevention and Control, the NIH websites. There's a group at the NIH called the NIDDK, the National Institute for Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Disease. Interesting that they're all lumped together, but the NIDDK website also is an authoritative source for diabetes. 
and many other medical centers around the country. You know, we, obviously we're proud of ours at the University of Chicago, but right. you know, the, Chicago is blessed with seven outstanding uh, university-level medical centers: Northwestern, Lurie, um, and p places that people are familiar with: Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic. All of those places have great information. In many cases, books can be downloaded. Right. There are. Uh, all sorts of interviews, discussions, mm -hmm. webinars. So all of those can be trusted sources of information. And the JDRF One Nation event is outstanding. We're certainly represented there, but many of the diabetes experts around Chicago, and we're blessed with many at the different medical centers, right. will be there that people can speak with personally. We'll leave it there. That's Dr. Lewis Phillipson, director of the UChicago Medicine Kovler Diabetes Center. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.